We are in Deuteronomy chapter 24 through 26 this evening. If you will, go ahead and open your Bible to, well, actually, don't open your Bible there. Go to Romans chapter 13. I'd like to start with Romans chapter 13. <clears throat> no, we're not switching to the New Testament, but I want to look at something here in light of what we've been studying. Romans 13 we think of this chapter as being one that deals with the civil government and how we have the civil government because God ordained it for our benefit. And in that chapter, in the first paragraph he talks about that, in that chapter, verse 8, 9, and 10, he highlights none other than Ten Commandments that were given to us in the Old Testament. We've gone over some of those. Some of those we talked about last week, how some of the commandments are essentially nothing other than those Ten Commandments that are expounded upon in various ways. Look at Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Owe no man anything, save to love one another, for he that loveth his neighbor hath fulfilled the law. This gets to the idea that Jesus even spoke of, quoting Leviticus 19, verse 18. One of the two great commandments, love your neighbor as yourself. Here Paul repeats that. Verse 9, for this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, not steal, covet. If there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this word, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And thinking of the idea of summing an idea up, we've talked about some of those ideas, how some of these ideas that we're seeing in the chapters that we're in are summed up in that idea of loving your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10, love works no ill to his neighbor. Love therefore is the fulfillment of the law. He mentions these 10 commandments here, leaves off the first four that pertain to God and leaves off the idea of honor father and mother. But the rest of these I think are mentioned here in this particular context. wanted to look at that before we get into our lesson, though, and, and see how one reason we look and study the Old Testament, how the Old Testament and New Testament fit together and work together well. Also, in light of that, while we're in Romans, let's go, I want to look at uh, another thought there in the book of Romans, chapter 3. As well, let's tie all this together too. Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Why do we study the Old Testament? Why do we go back and concern ourselves with it? It's, some people say, well, it doesn't apply to me anymore. Well, it's hard to read the New Testament without being forced to go back to the Old Testament and see what's being quoted, what's being alluded to, what's being referred to. And it's quite empty if you don't study the Old Testament with the New Testament. So Romans 3, verse 19, why do we study the Old Testament and why do we have the Old Testament here? Romans 3, verse 20, rather, because by the works of the law, the law of Moses, shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For through the law cometh the knowledge of sin. We look at the Old Testament and the Old Testament highlights sin. It, it puts a spotlight on sin so we can see it more clearly. It outlines it. It highlights it so we can understand it and see what it is and what it does to mankind. Also, let's tie this in with Romans 7, verse 7. Romans 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Is he talking about the law of Moses? Is it, is it sin? What use did it have? What purpose did it have? 
Romans 7, verse 7, God forbid, howbeit I had not known sin except the law, through the law, for I had not known coveting, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. And in, in addition to that, Galatians 3, verse 24, speaks of the old law being our tutor to bring us to Christ, our schoolmaster that, that brings us to Christ, that makes us understand what Christ has done to make us appreciate Christ. And so that's why we're, that's one reason we're spending a lot of time on Deuteronomy, studying it, and I'm trying to understand it better, how it applies to us. Now we'll go back to Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24. There are some topics in these chapters that are rather delicate, and I'm not going over every single paragraph, but I would certainly encourage you to read those. They're worth studying. Uh, you can certainly study those on your own time. Uh, but notice also in these chapters the last week or two and this week, some of these chapters deal with God's regard for those that are weak or those that are at a, maybe a disadvantage, those that are poor, those that are needy, those that are fatherless, the widow. God has high regard for those people and he expects his people to do the same. And we're seeing a lot of that thought and that sentiment outlined in these chapters. We must not have respect of persons as is so tempting to many people to do. We regard one person better than another. God did not desire that from his people and we're seeing a lot of that in these chapters as well. So let's go to the questions on chapter 24. Deuteronomy 24, first one is what obligation did Moses give in the process of putting away? What must the wife be given? Okay, a bill of divorcement. And what obligation does a man have to a new wife? Make her happy? Okay. <laughs> At least for the first year? <laughs> now, we're, we are resting the scriptures there. So. But certainly, indeed, we can understand the, the need, and God did as well, that uh, it takes a lot of adjustment during that first year of marriage. And uh, certainly, God understand that and provided for that situation. The plague of leprosy was to be treated in what manner? Whatever the priest said. Whatever the priest. Okay, whatever the priest has said. Doesn't spend a lot of time on it, does he? But it says, go back to the Leviticus, basically, and study that. Understand it. Give diligence to it, might we say. To go back and understand that. Don't overlook that law. What rules would apply as one would make a loan to his neighbor? Mm -hmm. don't, don't be uh, so intrusive on them that you go into their house and demand it of them. Don't sleep with their pledge. And what are the rules observed during the harvest? Okay. 
All right, we'll to leave, leave those gleanings for those that are less fortunate, those that are uh, poor and needy. <coughs> Deuteronomy 24. As you see on the outline here on the screen, we are in the section, we're looking at mostly domestic and social laws in chapters 21 through 25. Next week we'll get into, uh, or rather we'll get into 26 later, some of the ceremonial laws here in chapter 26 tonight. Deuteronomy 24 begins dealing with those domestic and social laws. The first four verses deal with the matter of divorce. Verse 1 says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, then it shall be if she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some unseemly, some of your virgins may say unclean, or something indecent in her, that he shall write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. Now we've already dealt with uh, passages such as last week, chapter 22, verse 22, where we deal with adultery, the idea of adultery. God's already dealt with what do we do in cases of uh, an adulterous relationship. We're not really looking at that here. What we're looking at is a man finds some unseemly or something he doesn't like, (coughs) simply uh, in regard to his wife. And I want you to look at uh, the rendering of the American Standard Version here. This is not the New American Standard Version, Uh, NASB. It's not that. It's the American Standard Version in 1901, put out in 1901. And I would encourage you to keep a copy of this version handy when you want to study a little bit more in depth because of the the wordings, the, the language that's used here, the words that are used here are a little bit more close to the original text. It reads, when a man takes a wife and marries her, then it shall be if she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some unseemly thing in her. Notice this phrase here, that he shall write her a bill of divorcement. Unless I am mistaken, none of the other versions beside maybe the King James words it so imperatively here. Notice how the American Standard words it here, that he shall. That's the idea we've seen so much in the book of Deuteronomy you shall, and tied, so many times tied with a command to do something. So the American Standard uses that phrase, that he shall write her a bill of divorcement. Some of the other versions, unfortunately, word it, if you, like, if you do this, then this is what you should do. But it seems to word it very much more imperatively here in American Standard, that he shall write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. Now we would certainly want to tie this in with Jesus' words as he was asked the question in Matthew chapter 19, what, for what reasons are we allowed to divorce? And when they refer to Moses, they're saying, well, Moses allowed us to, Moses gave us the permission, or we might say a license to do such and such. Matthew 19, verse 8. Matthew 19, verse 8, Jesus said, Moses, for your hardness of heart, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it hath not been so. 
So what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 19, 8 are two scriptures. He's going all the way back to Deuteronomy 24 that we just read. But he's actually going further back than that to Genesis chapter 2 to say, in the beginning, God's original design was one man for one woman for life. You have corrupted that law. Moses, here, here he says, suffered you because of your hardness of heart to put away your wives. Moses, he is saying, didn't give you a license to divorce for just any reason, for just a reason for any whim. You just decide you don't like your wife anymore and you put her out on the street, put her away. Jesus is saying from the, from the beginning, it was not that way. And by saying so, he's telling us to go back to the beginning. Look at the law of marriage in the beginning. As we've seen some other occasions here in Deuteronomy, we're not seeing a, in Deuteronomy 24, we're not seeing a license to do something. If we go back to the idea of the study that we had on the kings, you recall the idea that Moses laid forth in the study of the kings? If you put, up, put forth a king and have a king, Certainly we know from 1 Samuel 8, that was not God's desire to have an earthly king. He was disappointed with the people. But God, foreseeing that they would, said, when you do this, this is how you will control that particular thing. In other words, he's reining them in. He's not giving them a license to have a king. And here he's not giving them license for divorce. But he's saying, Moses suffered you to do this. Now, we get to the real crux of the matter, I think, here in verse 4. Her former husband, or rather, uh, verse. Uh, let's go back to read verse 2. When she is departed out of the house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her and write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, who took her to be his wife, her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife, after that, she is defiled. So a large part of what Moses is saying here is to give her a bill of divorcement. Give her, don't treat her so that you, we're, we're looking again, the idea of God has regard for those that are, we might say, at a disadvantage. Those that are weak, he is protecting the woman in this relationship, that she be not just put out of the street. He's telling them that they must give her a bill of divorcement, not a license to have a divorce. And certainly Jesus is the best commentary on this in Matthew 9, 19, rather verse 7 and 8. So we see here these first four verses. If you have some unseemly thing, again, this is not the idea of adultery. You must give her a writing of divorcement. Moses stipulated, or God, Jesus rather, said Moses gave this for the hardness of your heart. He stipulated this condition. And again, this is not a license for uh, a divorce. All right, verse 5. When a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out of the host in, in battle. He should not be charged with any business. Verse 5. He shall be free at home one year. He shall cheer his wife. Whom he hath taken. We've already uh, 
commented on that, the idea. First year takes a lot of adjustment for two people to live together, to get used to, to, to that idea. And I think God allows for that uh, to be the period of time where they adjust to that situation. Verse 6, no man shall take the mill or the upper millstone to pledge. This is taking someone's livelihood, taking their ability to provide for themselves. You take their millstone, they cannot grind the grain, and then you're taking that away from them. Some might do that because it's a thing of value. They use that as a pledge. But God says, do not do that because you're actually taking his ability to make money or to sustain himself. Verse 7, if a man be stealing any of his brethren of the children of Israel, or what we might call kidnapping. Uh, we see and hear so much today about trafficking, human trafficking. It was not, it's not something new today, is it? It's something that Moses had to deal with in the book of Deuteronomy, as well as we do today. People steal one another and sell them for profit. Verse 8, take heed in the plague of leprosy. As we've talked about here, he says, and I highlight this phrase here, verse 8, that thou observe it diligently. He's not going to give us every condition, but rather he's going back and saying, you go back and look at Leviticus, understand it, consider it diligently, and also, and on top of that, remember what happened to Miriam. that She was stricken with leprosy. Verse 10, when, thou, uh, when you lend to your neighbor any matter of loan, thou shalt not go into his house to fetch his pledge. So here we see uh, an idea where a man wants to be paid back for what he's loaned, and he gets aggressive. He goes into the house, he's intrusive, and he says, I want my money back. Moses says, no. He draws the line. You cannot do that. You're not to be intrusive in that matter to take your pledge. You wait, you allow the man to go in his house and bring out the pledge to you. If he be poor, verse 12 and 13, you don't take a poor man's pledge and sleep with it. You don't take it and keep it. You don't uh, let the sun go down on a situation like this in verse 13. Verse 14 and 15, the poor and the needy, you shall not oppress the hired servant that is poor, whether he be of thy brethren, of thy sojourners that are in the land within thy gates. In his day thou shalt give him his hire, neither shall the sun go down upon it, for he is poor. Setteth his heart upon it, lest he cry unto the Lord, and it be sin unto you. We wouldn't want a situation like that, would we? That we've been so oppressive to the poor that God considers it sin on our part that we are so demanding in such a situation. Let's go down to verse 17. <clears throat> Thou shalt not rest or twist the justice or pervert justice that is due to the sojourner, the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, or take the widow's raiment rather in pledge, but thou shalt remember what? When you're tempted to do that, what do you remember that about yourself? You were a slave in Egypt at one point in time. You were basically in that same situation. So don't pervert the justice that is due someone 
consider your own background. Verse 19 through 22, we have the idea of the regulating the harvest. <clears throat> when you reap your harvest and you count the sheaves, as you go to the barn, you count the sheaves, you had 30 sheaves, you thought, but there's one missing. You get to the barn, there's one missing. Do you go back and get it? Go back to the field and get that one that was missing? When you are harvesting the crops in the fields, do you go and harvest every single corner that you can, maneuver every, get every bit of grain? No, you don't. Think about if you were a, what if you were a farmer and you were under this law? You're a farmer and you go out to the field and you see the fatherless and the widows and the poor out gleaning in your field and they see you coming and they think, oh, oh, we better leave. You know, that's our first reaction, isn't it? But what if that landowner talks friendly to you and says, take all you want? That's the idea, isn't it? Think about if that's a sojourner that doesn't know the people of God and he's being exposed to the kingdom of God. He's out in the field gleaning. What is he going to think about the kingdom of God and his people if the landowner is very cordial, very friendly, generous, take what you want? You ever think about it that way? This is a law that God is providing for those that are less fortunate. But it's also something that if you were a sojourner, this would certainly be an icebreaker, wouldn't it? It would be an occasion for us to show the attitude of generosity of God's people to those that are less fortunate. And certainly that would adorn the kingdom of God appropriately. Any thoughts on chapter 24? Yes. Very helpful in the um, context here that helps us understand what the Lord means by this statement in verse 1, this some indecency that has been found. Um, to, because otherwise, as you can readily imagine, that could, well, it could be just about anything. But when the Lord uses that, um, you'll see back in chapter 23, verse 14, as you may know, um, that, that word is used previously and sheds quite a lot of light on what is being meant. So in chapter 23, verse 14, since the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to defeat your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy and he must not see anything indecent among you lest he turn away from you. So as you said before, this is not broadly permissive there's something here that the Lord himself would not be pleased with, that this man uncovers. Um, there's something that even the Lord would turn away from them on account of. And so this is something that the man has uncovered. And plainly, it would have to relate to some laws they had already received, um, demands that God places upon them. And like you said, it's not broadly permissive. And Jesus... Um, corrects them on that as well. But I think this that statement ties it to the holiness that they should have. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's something probably in a moral sense 
It's not the physical sense. It's not the adultery or something of that nature because, that, like you said, that's already been dealt with. But something in a, probably in a moral sense that this man uncovers and um, would be displeasing even to the Lord. Mm -hmm. Very good. Any, any other thoughts? Chapter 24. Just to piggyback a little bit off of what Jonathan's saying around um, the holiness of this people, um, you, you've mentioned in the, previously in the book, God's, God's talked about this is how you become blessed yourself, following these laws. If you think about the contrast you provided to present day versus this time period, how do we, how do we become you know, rich and blessed in this country, in this culture. Well, sometimes it's exploiting the people that are on the screen, you know, taking advantage of, of, uh, of, our, of our state of affairs, uh, our, our business uh, behaviors, et cetera. And, he's, and that's how we become, you know, wealthy and blessed in this country. Uh, and like you mentioned with your example about in the field, they're, they're basically told to do the opposite. You, you treat... In order to be a blessed people, one of the things you have to do in this chapter is not oppress or disrespect anybody, regardless of their... You can't put anybody in a bucket. Everyone is equal uh, when it comes to the, how you show them respect and, and, uh, and not oppress them. That's how you become wealthy if you're an Israelite. Mm -hmm. So much of this makes me think of Matthew 7, verse 12. Jesus said... We, we paraphrase by saying, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's a very profound uh, sentence, isn't it? Uh, but it speaks to that. James 2 speaks of this as well. Uh, James said, if someone comes into your assembly and, and they have regard for those that are fine clothing, those that are rich, and say, come sit over here. We want you to be over here. We want to lift you up because, after all, you're going to lift us up too, aren't you? Isn't that a two-way street? So we have respected persons, and James 2 condemns that idea. And actually, he actually goes back and quotes a couple of the Ten Commandments in that chapter. But he says, James 2, don't have respected persons, as this chapter and other chapters here have dealt with before. God is very concerned that we don't respect one another or have over regard for one class or one people, one group of people over another to and slight those that are less fortunate. All right, let's go to chapter 25. When a beating was required as punishment, how was it regulated? Beating before the judge. Okay, I have to go before the judge. You have to, if, if that going before the judge, you're deserving of a punishment such as a beating, where do we cut that off? Can't just beat a person to death, can you? And there's, we're seeing ideas here that God has, he, he gives a law, but then he dials it in by giving us very, very specific parameters to work within. And he does it here in chapter 25. Forty stripes is the maximum. What was to be done for the ox? Do not muzzle the ox. 
Uh, how was a brother treated that refused to take his dead brother's wife? Okay, take the sandal off, spit in his face. What type of measurements or weights would should be used? Perfect and just. And what did the idea of remembering Amalek involve? Blotting out their remembrance. Blotting them out entirely. Chapter 25. Various and sundry laws here. I'm not going to put these in a particular category. As we said, they mostly, mostly relate to domestic, social. There are some other ideas mixed in here as well. Deuteronomy 25, first, four, first three verses, rather, deal with the idea of a, a crime that's committed here between two people. Notice that the judge is to oversee this situation. There is to be a determination by the judge who is right and who is wrong. And if it is determined that he is wrong and he's worthy to be beaten, the judge, notice again verse 2, shall cause him to lie down and be beaten before his face. So notice that the judge is in control of this situation. This is not just people out on the street just taking matters into their own hands. Forty stripes are the maximum that he shall receive. You will not exceed that. You'll see at times if you read or whatever, you might see the idea of 40 stripes save one. And they would take one or subtract one lest they would violate this command. Verse 4, thou shalt not muzzle the ox when he treads out the grain. This is quoted in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 9, where Paul quotes it referring to those that are supported, those preachers that are supported by work. They are worthy of the, they're hired. It goes back to the principle here, you will not muzzle the ox. He goes on in 1 Corinthians 9 to explain what is the purpose of the ox after all? Isn't he there for your benefit? He is, isn't he? So doesn't it sound logical to feed this ox and he will help you? He will feed you, so to speak. Also quoted in 1 Timothy 5, verse 18, this very uh, verse here, the very idea, thou shalt not muzzle the ox. Referring there uh, a little more to the idea of the elder that is worthy of double honor. In verse 5, the idea of what we call sometimes the leveret law is mentioned, verse 5 through 10. In the latter part of verse 5, he says, A husband or husband's brother shall go in unto her. That was God's desire, that was God's ideal for this to happen. If the husband dies, her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to be the wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to raise up seed, godly seed, for that family. And certainly this would not violate any other laws about marriage. Just, we are not to think that this would violate any other laws that God has given about marriage. But if he chooses not to do so, then verse 8 says, The elders of the city shall call him and speak unto him. If he stand, I say, and like not to take her, do not wish to take her, the brother's wife will come, take the shoe off his foot, spit in his face, and hereby we have basically what is given uh, as a 
really a stigma upon this man because he did not follow what was God's ideal in raising up this godly seed for the family. And notice the stigma again, verse 10, that is attached to him. His name shall be called in Israel, if you make him a nickname, we'll say, the house of him that hath his shoe loosed. You would not want to be attached with that stigma from now on. We uh, think about a passage like this, and, and I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Such a strange passage to turn to, to tie this together here. Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. We have the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew 1, verse 5. Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth. Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king. In this verse, we are seeing what are the results of this law, the Leveret law, raising up seed for your brother. And we don't have time to go into it too much, but if we go back to the book of Ruth, we see here that this Boaz that's mentioned here was one that took advantage of that law. He actually had one that was before him that had that right. He went to him and talked to him, and that man said no. So Boaz said, well, I will take Ruth. And lo and behold, they find themselves in the middle of the genealogy of Jesus. Isn't that fitting? Isn't that interesting? That this very law that seems to us kind of obscure, kind of uh, maybe unimportant, that that very law is what we see here in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. It's being played out before our very eyes. And this Boaz uh, became the great-grandfather of David the king. Isn't that, isn't that just really interesting? Very profound. Now let's go back to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 25 once again. Going to down to verse uh, 13 through 15, or 13 through 16, the idea is set forth to have just weights and a perfect and just measure shall you have. In your business dealings, you need to, if a, a pound is a pound, is a pound is a pound. A gallon is a gallon. You go to the gas pump and pump out 15 gallons. How do you know for sure you're getting 15 gallons? How do you know? You stick your hose in the, the car and you pump and you pump and well that dial says I'm getting 15 gallons. How do you know that's 15 gallons? How do you know? There is a department of agriculture that monitors that. They go, I don't know how often they do it, but they test and check all the equipment to make sure it's metering out just exactly like it's supposed to. So you wind up with exactly what you were supposed to, a fair and a just measure. We like that. We appreciate that, don't we? And Jesus, or rather God here through the mouth of Moses is saying, I demand it of my people. I demand this of perfect and a just measure shall you use. 
And the idea in verse 17 through the end of the chapter about smiting Amalek. Uh, we talked about the idea of loving your neighbor as yourself. Does smiting Amalek fit in with the idea of loving your neighbor as yourself? Just think about that for just a moment. How God dials in so many commands. He, lest we take it to an extreme and say, love your neighbor as yourself means I don't do anybody any harm, anytime, anywhere. But he dials that in here and says, remember Amalek. God hasn't forgotten Amalek. Verse 17, remember what Amalek did to you when you were coming out of Egypt? He came up in the rear and took advantage of those that were in the rear. And God says, I have not forgotten. You shall not forget. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15, he told Saul to go and smite Amalek. Utterly destroyed him. We won't get into what Saul did, but Saul didn't really obey. Did he? he obeyed partially, but he did not obey. And God is meeting out justice here, meeting out his justice, and we are to get in line with God and his justice as well. Any other thoughts on chapter 25? Okay, let's go to chapter 26. <clears throat> we'll stray from the questions here. <clears throat> Chapter 26. First, we're looking at the idea of the first fruits. Verse 1 of chapter 26. It shall be, when thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance, and possesses, possess it, and dwell therein, that thou shalt take of the first of all the fruit of the ground which thou shalt bring in from thy land that the Lord thy God giveth thee. Thou shalt put it in a basket, and shalt go into the place which the Lord thy God shall choose. Notice that phrase once again. The place where the Lord your God shall choose. The place where the tabernacle will be. To cause his name to dwell there. The first fruits were mentioned even as far back as Genesis chapter 4. When uh, Abel brought of the firstling, first fruits. And uh, so we could go back and see that. But the idea of the first fruits is an idea that uh, sometimes we don't, maybe we don't talk about it enough. And don't quite understand what is happening here. But the idea of the first fruits is brought up in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus is the first fruits of those that will come after him. He is the first to be raised from the dead. We will come after him. He is the first of those that will follow. So there's that idea. There's also the idea of that which is best. When you have a harvest and you reap that harvest, those first fruits that, that come are very precious to us. They're very good. Hopefully they're good. And if they're good, we enjoy those. But God says, I want those. I want those dedicated for me and for, and we'll see the Levites as well. But notice what he says when you come and give me your first fruits, in verse 3, thou shalt come unto the priest that shall be in those days, and say unto him, and notice all of this is being done as we're bringing the first fruits to the tabernacle. 
I want you to say these things. I profess this day to the Lord thy God, verse 3, that I am come of the land which the Lord sware unto our fathers to give us. And the priest shall take the basket and set it down before the Lord. And then you're going to go backward in verse 5. I want you to go all the way back to remember where you came from. Remember your inception. Assyrian was my father, ready to perish. Or Aramean. Some of your versions may say Aramean in verse 5. He went down into Egypt, sojourned there, few in number, became there a nation, verse 5, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians dealt ill with us, afflicted us. Then we cried out to God, verse 7. And God brought us forth. He, he redeemed us, in verse 8, brought us out with a mighty hand. And now we are here in this place, verse 9. We're here in this land flowing with milk and honey. This very fertile land, we're here now. And now behold, this is all process, or part of the process of worship. Verse 10, the last part of verse 10 says, This is part of your worship before the Lord thy God. And verse 11 highlights the idea of rejoicing. So we see some of these ideas about worship. A lot of these ideas that we're to uh, basically use as our example. And you can find parallels in this the idea to our bondage, our redemption from bondage. And all of these things are tied to the first fruits. God has blessed us and put us in this place. And we're not to forget about where we came from. Our inception. We were in bondage. God delivered us. He redeemed us out of that bondage. And the blessings that we have now, we attribute those to God. So we've come full circle with this idea. You see the inception. You see their sojourn in Egypt. They're to, they're to remember their bondage in Egypt. Number four, their cry for deliverance. And then that on the heels of that, their redemption or their deliverance from the bondage. And then number six, you proclaim the present blessings that you have and you attribute those to God. Now I want to look at something interesting with you. I hope, hopefully you'll think this is uh, <clears throat> as interesting as I do. Romans chapter 8 also mentions the idea of first fruits. Used in a little bit different way than 1 Corinthians 15, but in Romans chapter 8, verse 23, Paul there mentions the first fruits of the Spirit. Not only so, but ourselves also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting for our adoption. That is the redemption of our body. We're longing for that, I, that uh, process. So you begin to see here what we've highlighted here in these six steps. We've come full circle. We look at where we are and we go back to where we were and how we were in bondage. We cried for deliverance. We were redeemed. And here we are back at that idea of proclaiming the present blessings. Notice as we look, go back up to verse 20 of that chapter, Romans 8 verse 20. For the creation was subjected to vanity, not of its own will, but by reason of him who subjected it. We're going all the way back to the inception, the creation. 
in our minds. The creation itself shall also be delivered from the bondage. That's an idea of redemption that we see here. From, from, into the liberty of the glory of the children of God. Realize the present conditions fertile, the land flowing with milk and honey, that fertile land. We've been delivered from the bondage of corruption and the liberty of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails. That's that idea of the crying out for deliverance. That we see we long to be clothed. We long to have that. We groan within ourselves waiting for the redemption of our body. So we see a lot of parallels in Romans 8 here. The idea we've seen in Deuteronomy 26. Let's tie those together. And understand the idea of first fruits, what Moses wanted them to understand about first fruits, what they're to think about when they give that. We see ideas like this about the Lord's Supper. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're, we have outlines of things that we're to think about and dwell upon as we do so. And we think about the ideas of first fruits. Let's look at Deuteronomy 26 and Romans 8 are two chapters. You tie those in together and think about the idea of what, what it means to, to have first fruits that we could offer to God and, and that whole process of redemption and being delivered and so forth. Any other parting thoughts as we close out with chapter 26? All right. We'll begin in chapter 27, maybe touch briefly upon the end of chapter 26 next week. Uh, appreciate your kind attention.